0: We're in week two of a new series on the Lord's Prayer. Last week, Andrew talked about how we approach God, God as Father. This week, we're going to move on to the second phrase, which is, Hallowed be thy name. And I've got to admit, I've got a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the Lord's Prayer. I work with athletes at the University of West Georgia. So I hear the Lord's Prayer at least once, twice, maybe even three times a week. And usually, I hear the Lord's Prayer in the locker room before we run out to the baseball diamond or to the ball field, and it usually sounds something like this: "Our Father in heaven, how may I And it's a chant, and and the mindset is this: okay, is that it's just part of the pregame ritual. So I get on my lucky socks maybe my lucky underwear, I eat my favorite meal, then I get the playlist with the rock songs or the rap songs that get me motivated for the game. And the final thing I do before I take the field is I chant with my teammates the Lord's Prayer. Now, if you're a coach or a player and you say the Lord's Prayer, I'm not knocking it. I, I, I think the motives, the heart is right. But what's really interesting and really ironic about, about how we use the Lord's Prayer in our day and age, is that before Jesus explains how to pray and gives us the Lord's Prayer, He tells us how not to pray in Matthew 6. And one of the things Jesus says is, don't heap up empty phrases. And the great irony of how we often use and apply the Lord's Prayer in today's day and age is that very often we reduce it to a chance. We reduce it to an empty phrase. We make it just something we do before we go to the ball game and we go about life. So it's more important than ever that for us to get back to the root, to the basics, to the blueprint of what Jesus is passing on to us with the Lord's Prayer. So I love the Lord's Prayer. I love the simplicity. I love the outline. But sometimes I hate the way we apply it. Okay? And so Andrew mentioned this last week. He said that um, the Lord's Prayer appears two times in the New Testament. And one time, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. That is the longest recorded sermon that Jesus has. It's a big chunk of red in Matthew 6, 7, and 8. But there's actually another time in Luke 11 where Jesus recites the Lord's Prayer. And here's what's really interesting. It's actually a response. It's an answer to his disciples. And the disciples approach Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. This is a basic point. You don't even need to write this down. But when 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 you're really good at something, people ask you how to do it. Does that make sense? When you're really good at something, people ask you how to do it. How many of you have ever sampled Brent Hildebrand's uh, cinnamon rolls? Okay, they're incredible. Okay, and, and after you take the first bite, you finish it off. Usually the first thing you say is you say, Brent, how did you make this, right? You got to give me the recipe, let me know the techniques. You're this amazing baker, okay? If you've ever gone to play golf with Andrew or Taylor Porbiansky, all right, one of the first things you say is, look, d- d- give me the secrets, give me the tips, that backswing, your approach, how you line up to the ball. I want to be able to swing like you swing the ball, oh, swing the club, excuse me. Does that make sense? Okay, you, you, you ever seen Blake Worley's biceps, okay, for, for your weight room guys? I mean, you probably say, look, how do I get pipes like you, Blake? Is it, is it preacher curls? You know, is it bar curls? I mean, what's the secret? Okay, so the point I'm making is this. When you're good at something, people approach you and they say, explain it. Tell me more about this. Give me tips. Give me the secret. Well, here's what's really interesting. The only recorded question that we, have the, that we read about the disciples asking Jesus is they ask him how to pray. Now, Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He was holy. He was a heck of a teacher, a leader, a disciple maker. He could perform miracles, but nowhere in the gospels do we read about the disciples saying, Jesus, how'd you do that miracle? Tell us, give me some some secrets on organizational leadership. The one thing that the disciples, as they followed Jesus, spent time with Jesus, lived with Jesus for three years consecutively, the one thing the disciples said, I gotta know how you do this. You gotta explain, you gotta reveal, was his prayer life. That suggests to me that there must have been something so impressive, so deep, so profound, so impactful about the way Jesus prayed. The disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And you want to know how Jesus responded? This is what he said. He said, Father, he said, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us our day, our daily bread, and forgive our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Jesus responds with the Lord's prayer. Okay? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to learn to pray like Jesus. We're going to focus on one phrase, Hallowed be thy name. We're going to have three points this morning. What does it mean to hallow the name of God? Then we're gonna look at two locations or two areas we need to hallow God's name in our heart, but also in the world. Okay, you with me? Okay, so point number one. What does it mean to hallow the name of God? Does anybody use the word hallow in their everyday life? I didn't think so. You might have that one like poetic history teacher who talks about like hallowed ground. Uh, Kids, we talk about Halloween. But those are about the only two places I could come up with where we use the word hallow. And here's what's really interesting, okay? is that we read modern versions of the Bible, don't we? Whatever your favorite V or version is, ESV, NIV, New King James, okay? Every one of these versions keeps the word hallow. And the word hallow is really this old English word. And there's a reason why we stick, these translators, these writers, stick with the word hallow because there's really not a modern day equivalent in our day and age. Because what the word hallow means is to make sacred, to set apart, to treat something as ultimate. Really, the verb hallow, it it, it comes from the root to make holy. You with me? And so when we hallow something, we make it the most important thing in our life. Essentially, the word hallow is like a synonym or another word for adoration, for praise, for worship, and for reverence, and so do you see what Jesus is doing right here? He's doing what most of us do when we're about to have a really important conversation. Jesus uses the right title, and then he gets down to business. Okay, you with me? Whenever you have a really important conversation, you got to address the person with the right title, and then you get down to business. There are certain conversations we have. Where, where we don't make chit-chat, we don't exchange pleasantries, we're not extremely polite or Southern. And we, so, so, for example, okay, if you're in the recovery room or the hospital, you say, doctor, okay, um, wh- wh- what's the news? What's the word? Okay, what's the diagnosis? You might be in a courtroom, and you'll say, judge, what's the verdict? You might be in a boardroom, a businessman, and you say to the VP or to the president or the CEO, Can we make a deal? You see what I'm saying? All right, Jesus is doing the exact same thing. Last week, Jesus, or excuse me, Andrew said that we don't primarily approach God as creator, as maker, as ruler. He is instructing us to approach him as Father. And then Jesus gets down to business, and he's saying, the first thing I gotta pray about, the first thing I got to focus on is hallowing the name of God. And so what does this mean? What Jesus is suggesting is that God's name, his holiness, comes first. And it comes first not only in our prayer life, but it should also come first in our daily life. Jesus is saying the first order of business when you approach God in prayer is to hallow, to revere, to adore, and to worship God. So in other words, you can think about it this way. Why did God make us? Why did God create us? Well, to worship him. We exist for God's glory. In other words, God placed us on this planet for one thing, for one purpose, simply to hallow the name of God. So now the question is why? Why is this where where Jesus begins? Did Jesus just read Art of the Deal or How to Win Friends and Influence People? Is this this an attempt at flattery? Is Is Jesus instructing us to kiss up to God? As if if we just rattle off different adjectives and attributes, God's going to give us exactly what we want. Is this just a negotiation tactic with God the Father? Now look, I, I'm a ministry guy, okay? I never took a business class in college. Whenever we break out spreadsheets and Excel, budget sheets, like I almost fall asleep, okay? I just, I don't do business. But every once in a while I get to do a little bit of negotiation, not big contracts, but daily negotiations you know where i do most of my negotiation okay in the cafeteria okay and here's what i do because you're always negotiating right with lunch ladies and you're always negotiating for more protein more meat am i right guys and so here's usually what i do and 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 look i'll be honest i verge on flattery almost sinful flattery sometimes but but i approach the ladies and i just how's your day going you know you're you're looking great today with your hair net on I make a little chit-chat, right? I'm being polite, and then usually I say, you know, is there any way I can get an extra piece of chicken, (laughs) right? Don't be shy, you know, with the flank steak. You know, you know I'm a growing boy. I'm trying. I'm negotiating. I'm kissing up. I'm trying to impress just to get a little extra meat. Well, is that what we're doing right here? Is this what we're doing with God? Are we trying to impress him? Are we trying to kiss up to him? Well, no. Because one of the things that Jesus tells us before he gives us the Lord's Prayer, is he says, look, God knows exactly what you need before you ask. So we're not trying to impress him, this isn't negotiation. Sometimes we think that hallowing the name of God means I just break out every theological word I've got in my vocabulary at the beginning of my prayer. Right? You've heard prayers like this, the flowery theological language, almost sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, you know, and providential God. Is that what Jesus is talking about here? No. Do do you know how the Jews often applied this idea of hallowing the name of God? They wouldn't say the name of God. Okay. So Jews in the original audience that Jesus was speaking to, they would use the name Yahweh as God. And most of them would not even publicly say Yahweh because they felt like it was so sacred, so holy, set apart, I can't even say it scribes these are men whose job description was to transmit and write down scripture move it from one scroll to the next do you know what they would do when they when they came across the word yahweh they would actually put their pen down they would step up step up from their desk and they would walk outside and they would submerge themselves in a pool of water in a sense they would baptize or cleanse themselves And they would do this at least three to five times a day. And there was a reason for it. What they were suggesting with their actions is that this name is so hallowed. It's so set apart. It's so unique. I've got to cleanse myself even to write it down. Was that what Jesus is commanding us to do? No. Because when Jesus says we hallow the name of God, he's not talking about the literal name. He's not talking specifically about the name Yahweh because a name, especially in the ancient Near East, it represented who you were, your character, your essence, your attributes. And so what Jesus is calling us to do, he's saying, look, when we hallow the name of God, we live in a way that pleases, that honors, that makes much of God. When Jesus commands us to hallow the name of God, he's saying, live, go about your life in a way that demonstrates that your relationship with God the Father is the most important thing in your life. Okay, does that make sense? So that's what it means to hallow the name of God. And Jesus then says, look, there's two places we gotta hallow God's name. First off, in our heart, and then in the world. Let's talk about the heart. You know, Andrew mentioned last week that whether you're religious or irreligious, we all pray. We all speak, we all reach out to some sort of higher power. Well in the same way, it doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious, we all hallow something or someone. We all in the bottom of our hearts have someone or something that we value, that we honor, that we treat as sacred. And what Jesus is saying in the Lord's Prayer is that prayer, it's a great test, it's a great way to diagnose what you hallow the most in your heart. Okay, it's a test. It's a diagnostic. And so Jesus is saying, first off, the first question you gotta ask yourself is, when do you pray? When do you pray? Because I think if we're honest and we're real with ourselves, very often we only pray or we primarily pray when we're going through trouble and adversity. Anybody identify with that? And so usually this is how the pattern goes. I was down in the training room the other day with a guy who had a banged up shoulder Okay, he's not able to play the game he loves, and he's just saying, Ben, I've been praying and praying each and every day, and usually we do the same. Something goes wrong, okay? There's a breakup, we take a financial hit, we lose a job, and we start praying. And then eventually what happens, okay, is maybe we make a little more money, we reach financial stability, our body heals, the relationship is mended, things get better, and what happens? We stop praying. Right, we tend to drift away or fade away from God. Well, what does that reveal? Is that the primary way we relate to God is not as Abba, it's not as Father. In a sense, we're treating God like an ambulance driver. Does that make sense? Ambulance drivers, we call them uh, only in case of emergency, only when something goes wrong, only when you know something is on the verge of tragedy. It's a 911 line. You don't call an ambulance driver just to enhance. To go deeper in your relationship and so the problem what Jesus is saying is the reason why we don't pray or the reason why we only pray when things go bad ultimately it comes down to this it's a hallowing issue it's a hallowing issue the reason why we don't pray consistently is because very often we adore we worship or we revere something other than God There's a reason why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus commands us to pray for our daily bread, okay? Here's what you gotta understand about the ancient Near East. They didn't know anything about the paleo diet, okay? They didn't do Atkins, okay? They weren't avoiding carbs, okay? Bread was a daily staple. They ate bread each and every day with every meal. Bread was something that was essential. Uh, it, It was a part of every meal. It was a part of your daily life. There's a reason why Jesus doesn't say, give us this day our daily latte or cappuccino, whatever your Starbucks or Gallery Road drink of choice is. Jesus doesn't say, give us this day you know, our daily brownie and scoop of vanilla, vanilla ice cream. He says bread, because bread was essential. It was a necessity. And so here's usually what happens in our prayer life, okay? You, you, you might lose something. Alright, something bad happens to you, and you, you probably all had this experience, I know I have, where we say, look, God, I, I'm praying and praying and praying, would you change this? And I'm asking, and I'm asking, and I'm asking, and I'm, you know, I'm crying out to you, God, and I get to the end of my prayer, and I'm still anxious, and I'm still worried, and I'm still tre- stressed out, and God, I thought you promised if I pray to you, I'd experience peace, and you'd remove these anxieties. Well, do you know there's a reason for that? There's a reason why, why, why you remain anxious. And the reason is, is you've taken something that God has created and you've made it what? You've made it bread. You've made it bread. You've made it something that I have to have, that is essential, that is necessary for life. And it could be anything. It could be a promotion. You might say to yourself, I have to have this promotion. It could be a health issue. You could say to yourself, I can't be happy. I can't be satisfied unless God restores my health. So what have you made bread? What have you said, I have to have, I need this. I need to go on a date with this person. I need this GPA. I need to live in this type of home. These are all things that we can turn into bread. And once again, this is essentially a failure to hallow. And anytime we go to God in prayer and we ask and ask and plead and plead, and we fail to hallow him, we're going to remain anxious. Because do you see what we're doing? Instead of focusing on the character of God and who God is, we tend to obsess and focus on what we don't have and what we want and what we think we need. And this is a pattern that we see all throughout the book of Psalms. Whether it be David or another psalmist, very often the psalmists are going through trouble. They're going through adversity. They're going through hardship. And what's really amazing is they write these prayers. They start praying to God, and usually what they do is they start to hallow Him. They start to adore Him, and they start to worship Him. And at some point in the psalm, they're almost experiencing the calming presence of God. A lot of theologians call this the answering touch of God. But here's what's amazing. Very rarely do their circumstances change. Very rarely does God answer the prayer right then and there. But what's going on in the psalm is that these men, these writers, these authors are being reminded of the character of God. They're reminded of the presence of God. They're reminded that God is gracious, and he's good, and he's powerful, and he's just, and he's merciful, and it gives them peace in the midst of adversity. So so when do you pray? Do you only pray when you're in trouble, or do you pray pray when things are good? The next question we got ourselves is, What do you pray for when you're in secret? What do you pray for when you pray in secret? Hey, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that we're called to pray in secret, and our Father who sees in secret will reward us. So the question you gotta ask yourself is, is where does my mind naturally drift? What do I think about? What do I pray about? Not in public, not in my community group, not at church on Sunday, but when it's just me and God when I'm alone with my thoughts. So for you kids, you know, when the pastor is just talking way too long, where does your mind naturally wander? For the students, you know, in in, in the boring lecture, uh, when, when you're driving to class, when you can think about anything, where does your mind naturally go? For you workers, we're in the cubicle. When you're laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, what do you naturally pray about? Where does your mind naturally go? For most of us, It's not God and his character, it's something else. It might be that perfect vacation or having that perfect body. It might be a new van or truck or vehicle. It might be I just want to go to this restaurant and try this meal. I think this is the place where I experienced the most conviction as I prepared for this sermon. Because look, I'm in ministry, which means I'm preaching on prayer, but I'm also teaching students how to pray each and every day. And I'm pretty savvy pretty experienced. In fact, we we teach a little method in prayer called the axe method. And axe is an acrostic, and it starts with the A for adoration. And so I always go out of my way to explain to students, you got to adore God. You got to worship Him. You got to hallow Him. But here's what's really interesting. In my daily life, as I pray, I know I got to worship God. But where I'm usually most consistent, most passionate, and most earnest in my prayer life, if I'm to be honest with you, It has a lot to do with my success. God, I really hope that this sermon is clear. I really hope a lot of people come to the meeting tomorrow night. I really hope that you bless this appointment or this meeting. Very often where my heart naturally goes is making requests and petitions of God that are directly tied to my success. Because what competes in my heart for hallowing God's name is my name and my success. So here's what Jesus is saying. Look, we all hallow something. We all pray in secret, and if it's not God the Father, you're only going to pray when that thing is in jeopardy. Okay? Let me just point this out. Jesus not only gives us a model prayer, but he actually models how to pray this way. Okay? Jesus gives us a model prayer in the Lord's Prayer, but he also models how to pray in the midst of trouble. In John 12, 27, it says this, this is Jesus speaking. He says, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Now, just to give you a little context, this is right before Jesus goes to the cross. Anytime Jesus mentions his hour, he's talking about his crucifixion. And so Jesus is coming to grips with the fact that he's about to die on a cross, And the Jews are about to betray him. He's about to experience hatred and hostility. He knows that the the cross is going to be excruciating physically. But he also knows in the back of his mind that he's going to take on and bear the full wrath of God. And so do you see what Jesus does in the midst of trouble? He what? He prays. And how does he approach God in the midst of trouble? He calls him what? He calls him Father. Just like last week. He says, Abba. But notice, what is Jesus' request? What what does Jesus ask for? He doesn't say, Abba, get me out of this. Abba, let me avoid this. Abba, let me escape the cross. Okay, he says this, Abba, here's my purpose. Here's what I want to accomplish. Here's what I want to see happen through this hour. Abba, I want your name to be glorified. Do you see what Jesus is praying as he approaches the cross? He's saying, God, I want your name to be hallowed. Right as I go to my crucifixion. So here's what we see Jesus doing. Jesus not only prays, hallow thy name, he lives and he dies in a way that hallows the name of God. And at the cross, we have the fullest expression of God's name or his nature and his character. See, on the cross, we can most clearly see the full nature of God. Last week... We talked about how God is a compassionate and tender Father. Where is that most clearly seen? On the cross. This week, we're talking about the holiness and the righteousness and the hallowed nature of God. Where is that most clearly seen? On the cross. On the cross, we see that God is both just and gracious. We see that he's a judge, but he's also a savior. God's name is most hallowed, most glorified as Jesus goes to the cross. And look, there's another reason why Jesus went to the cross, not just to glorify the name, but Jesus was also accomplishing something. And he was accomplishing something for you and me because here's the truth. God is holy. God is hallowed as we've been singing all morning. And you and I are what? Okay, this is an easy one. You and I are what? We're not. We're sinful. We're not holy. And we don't hallow naturally the name of God. And here's what the Jews in Jesus' day would have understood. Because we're not holy, we cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. In fact, a central feature of their worship was this building called the temple. Okay, And within the temple, they actually had this little room called the Holy of Holies. And this was a pretty unique room. The room was actually a perfect square. So if you looked at the dimensions, the room was a perfect square. And only one guy could walk into this room once a year okay, you might have a room in your house that you really try to keep clean, all right, and mama says stay out of that room, okay, that, that was the holy of holies, only one guy could walk in once a year, and he had to cleanse himself, and he had to put on white robes, and he had to make a sacrifice for himself and for the people, and then and only then could he walk into the holy of holies, And in the Holy of Holies, he had to push through a thick curtain, and there was the Ark of the Covenant. And this room within this building of the temple represented the very dwelling place of a holy God. Now, this curtain that he pushed through was not just any curtain. This wasn't some cheap Walmart blackout curtain. This was a thick curtain. Okay, it was several inches thick, and it combined threads of blue and gold and white, and also uh, scarlet, and it was several inches thick. And here's what's amazing, okay? Because what this curtain represented was a separation between a holy God and an unholy people. But you know this, when Jesus goes to the cross, and at 3 p.m., when Jesus breathes his last breath and cries out to God the Father, you know what happens to that curtain? It's torn in two. But it's not torn from the bottom up, it's torn from the top to the bottom. Because God himself rips it in two, splits it in half. It's not ripped or torn by human hands. And I think you can see what this represents and what this symbolizes is that now we have total access. We have an open door into the presence of the holy God through the life and death of Jesus. This curtain represents Jesus each thread, each color that, that, that was combined in this curtain represents a different aspect of who Jesus is. There was blue cords, which represent something heavenly. There were purple cords, which represent something royal. There was white for purity and scarlet from blood. Well, who else is heavenly and royal and pure but was willing to spill his blood? None else than Jesus. And on the cross, when Jesus breathed his last breath, in a sense, he was ripped in two. He was torn in half. But because of the crucifixion, the sacrifice of Jesus, now we can enter into the presence of God. Now hear me out. This curtain was ripped in two. So we don't peek into the presence of God. We don't tiptoe into the presence of God. In fact, in the New Testament, it says what? We boldly approach the presence of God because this curtain was ripped in half. And so Jesus brings us into the presence of a holy God. The only way we can have a relationship with a God whose name is hallowed is through the life and death of Jesus. And this news changes us, and it changes our purpose. So last point, this is where we'll wrap up. Not only do we hallow God in our hearts, we also hallow God in the world. Now keep in mind, hallowed be thy name, this is a request, this is a petition. This is something we're asking God to do. And so here's what we're saying God, I want you to be hallowed in my heart, but I also want you to be hallowed out there. So this request is both personal and universal, it's individual and it's also global. And if we live and serve a holy God, that means God makes us into a holy people. Listen with me to 1 Peter 2 9, it picks up some of this same language of holiness that we've been talking about all morning. It says this, you, okay, and this is talking to the church, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Now keep in mind, in ancient Israel, there was just one high priest. But do you see the language here? Now we, we are a priesthood. We are a holy nation. We're a community of holy priests. So we're holy. That means we're set apart. We're distinct. That doesn't mean we remove ourselves from the world. It doesn't mean we escape from the cities, escape from culture. It means we're set apart not from the world, but for the world. And do you see our identity? As a church, we're a priesthood. Well, what did the priests do? He made sacrifices for the people. He would intercede on behalf of the people, and he would pray for his people. And so that's our identity as a church. We are a priesthood of believers. We are holy ones. We are set-apart ones. We exist. Our identity is not only to know God, but to make him known. We have to pray for our community. We pray for the nations, and we pray for the world. Do you see that? Because we're a priesthood. We have a responsibility. We have an obligation. And so, look, this is, this, this is not, a, we're talking here about mission. We're talking about evangelism. We're, we're talking about being in ministry. And very often when we talk about evangelism, we tend to emphasize it's a responsibility, right? It's a discipline. It's an obligation. But here's what I want you to see, okay? It is those things, but it's also the natural outflow of someone who hallows the name of God. So here's the thing. Right, when you love something, when you worship something, you like to talk about it. It's a pretty basic point. But you don't have to twist my arm, okay, to talk about the amazing catch or the amazing ball game that happened last night, right? I just talk about it because it was incredible. It was a sacred moment on this ball field. You don't have to twist my arm to talk about that you know, incredible you know, rack of ribs I ate last week because it was so good and it just flows out of my heart. You with me? And so, look, don't get me wrong. I think there are skills and tactics and methods and training that we need to undergo when it comes to evangelism. But very often, the reason why we don't pray is also the reason why we don't share our faith. It's a hallowing problem. And so, if you're not sharing your faith, if you're not open about the gospel, the first question you gotta ask yourself is Am I truly hallowing the name of God in my heart? so i do want to shift our focus a little bit not just talking about missions in our community all right missions in our workplace but actually world missions because you see right here the identity of this church all right the identity of the church is to make god's name known to all the nations and to all the world so how are we doing with this does anybody know how many people are in the world world population i want an exact number Okay, last I checked, according to Google, we got a lot of shout-outs for Google this morning. There are 7.6 billion people in the world. Okay, and what a lot of of what are called missiologists, those who study the mission of God, they break down the world population to what are called people groups. Okay, people groups. And these are a people group is a group of people who have a shared culture. They have a shared language. All right, they have a common identity. And so what we're not talking about are countries on a map. Okay, what we're really talking about is if you read your Old Testament, you'll come across these people groups that you can't pronounce, right? Amorites, Hittites, Babylonians, Assyrians. So anything that ends with ite or Ian is a people group. You with me? Okay, and according to most missiologists, there's about 17,000 people groups in the world. Of those 17,000, about 6,700, they classify as unreached. Okay, they classify as unreached. Now, there's a little bit of a debate and discussion as to what truly unreached means, but the bottom line is this. An unreached people group is a group on this planet, in this world, where the name of God is not clearly hallowed. Does that make sense? Different people define it in different ways. Some people would say an unreached people group is a group of people that has less than 2% Christian. Some people say it this way, um, that it's a place that has no indigenous church. Other people put it this way, that you could walk in any direction in two days and not come across a believer. So once again, the point is this. These are parts of the world where the name of God is not being hallowed. Okay, most of these people groups, let's go to our next slide. Do we have the next slide? All right. Most of these people groups live in a part of the world that is called the 1040 window. Here it is right here. 1040, we're talking latitude and longitude. You can see right here, this is parts of North Africa. This is parts of India and East Asia. 90% of all unreached people groups live in this area right here in the dark blue. That's called the 1040 window. And these people are least reached or unreached for a reason. First off, it's hard to travel there. It's hard to get there. We're talking about remote villages. We're talking about really um, small groups of people, really obscure languages. And a lot of these places, it's very dangerous to be a believer or to preach the gospel. You could be persecuted and you could even lose your life. So there's barriers to the gospel. But let me give you a couple stats, okay? There's actually a people group in China called the Jin Chinese. This is the largest unreached people group in the world. 63 million people, and they don't have scripture written in their language. Do you know that there's 72 people groups in Afghanistan, and 25 of them are unreached? Do you know that there's a village in India with 460,000 people, and there's no Christian presence? Okay, and this is shocking to us because we live in Carrollton, Georgia, and I could probably throw a rock in any direction and hit a church. We live in a very reached part of the world. But that's not what these countries are like in the 1040 window. One pastor puts it this way. He says the reason why missions exist is because worship doesn't. You get that? The reason why missions exist is because worship doesn't. To use the language of this morning, world missions, world evangelism, mission trips, the reason why we do them is because there's parts of the world where the name of God is not being hallowed. And that's what's going on in these least reached parts of the world. Instead of Abba or Yahweh being hallowed, it's Buddha, it's Muhammad, it's a tribal deity. So here's what I want you to see. This prayer, hallowed be thy name, yes, it's about you and God. It's about your relationship. But this might be the most missional prayer that you will encounter. This is a prayer for world evangelism. This is a prayer to reach the nations. This is a prayer that is center cut to the very purpose, mission of the church, which is is to make disciples of all nations. And so we all have a part to play. And there are going to be some men and women from this church who actually go, just like the Smiths and some of these West Georgia graduates who actually go to the world. Most of us are called to stay. But all of us, all of us can commit to pray, God, hallowed be thy name. We can pray for the nations. And I think very often most of us pray for ourselves, and there's nothing wrong with us. Jesus says, pray for your daily bread. So pray for yourself. Pray for your family. Pray for your workplace. Pray for your city but also pray for the world. If your prayers never go beyond the state of Georgia, the United States, your prayers are too small because the God of the Bible is the God of every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. Let me give you one easy, practical application. There's a website, app, email list called joshuaproject.org. And every morning in my email inbox, I get one unreached people group and three specific prayer points for a least reach or unreached people group, okay? Make it a daily habit individually as a family to pray, to talk about places in the world where God's name is not being hallowed. Let me, let me give you one final story about a man named William Carey. William Carey was a cobbler, okay? And you might be thinking... Can you really get paid to eat cobbler each and every day, kids? A cobbler is somebody who works with shoes, okay? I don't know why. I guess they walked on cobbled streets. Okay, somebody can correct me on that later on. Okay, a cobbler works with shoes. So we're talking smelly, jacked up, fungus-filled shoes. So each and every day, William Carey is working on shoes. Now, he was self-educated. He was college age. And here's what he would say. He would say, look, if you want to know the will of God... You got to have an open Bible and an open map. And so, guess what William Carey would do each and every day as he was tinkering or cobbling on some leather shoes? Okay, he actually built or he actually put together a copper map that he would stare at. And each and every day, he would pray for the nations. He would pray, God, hallowed be thy name in India, in Asia, in China, in Africa. And in fact, he got so passionate and so zealous as most college age students get, that he started you know, rebuking, calling out, pointing out to the ministers in his city that we need to be more serious about world missions and making disciples of all nations. And so these ministers, you know, they're these old gray-haired dudes, and they didn't want to change. So guess what they told William Carey? They said, look, young man, sit down. They said, look, when God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without you and without us. But William Carey was undeterred. He said, no, God God has given me this mission. God's name must be hallowed in the nation. So guess what William Carey did? He wrote a book. He actually wrote a book, and this book actually sparked what is called the modern missionary movement. Then William Carey moved to India, and he devoted the rest of his life to church planning, and then he translated the Bible into 40 different languages for Indian people groups. This is a man who understood Okay, what it meant to hallow the name of God. So here's where we'll wrap it up. Okay, we already talked about Revelations 5-9. We're going to look at one more picture in Revelation 7. Because this is a great mission, is it not? 6,700 people groups that need to know the name of Jesus. That's a tall order. It's a great mission. And so God not only gives us a great mission, but he gives us a great vision of what will happen, what will come one day. This is a picture of the new heavens and new earth. And notice what the author says. He says, I saw a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne in glory to the Lamb. This is a vision of the new heavens and new earth. And it doesn't mention it in Revelation 7, but here's really what's really interesting about this city, this new Jerusalem. We actually get the dimensions of it. And guess what the dimensions of this city are? They're a perfect square. Does that remind you of anything? Well, the Holy of Holies. And what Hebrews understood is that if you go into a room that's a perfect square, it's because you're in the direct presence of a hallowed God. Well, what's heaven going to be like? Every inch, every mile, every square foot is going to be like I'm in the holy of holies. I'm in the very dwelling place, the very presence of God. We see also that it's a holy place because we're clothed in white robes. Finally, in heaven, we'll be sinless, we'll be purified, we'll have glorified bodies. We see also that it's multi-ethnic We see people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Every people group will be represented in heaven. And we see also that heaven is a place. It's a universe where God's name is finally hallowed in a perfect way. Now, here's what I'm not saying, that heaven is this one long eternal church service. We're going to work. We're going to eat. We're going to feast. We're going to party. But everything we do in heaven will be done in a way that hallows and glorifies the name of God. So do you see this? This one phrase, this little statement, hallowed be thy name. It's the foundation of our prayer life. But it's also the purpose of our daily life. And this is actually the consummation. It is the direction that that it's the ultimate end of all things. And so this is where our universe is headed. This is where the story is going. To a new heavens, new earth, in existence. We will always for eternity hallow the very name of God. Does that make sense? Okay, let me pray for us. Dear Lord, I, I, I pray when we say, when we pray, hallowed be thy name, would you change what we think, what we feel when we pray this prayer? Lord, I pray will we would be a church that, is, that, that would hallow your name in our hearts, that we would say, Lord, you come first. You're more important than any possession, anything in creation, any other thing, that you are sacred, you are ultimate, you are number one in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that as we, our, our adoration and our worship and our reverence for you increases, Lord, that it would propel us and motivate us to be on mission. That we would be a church that is motivated to see your name hallowed in our homes, in our workplace, in our community, but also over the world. I pray that there would come a day we would say that every people group can cry out, Hallowed be thy name. Lord, we would be serious about praying and joining your mission. We bless your name. Amen.